Chapter 5 The ship was passing under the disk again, and again there was the flash of green fire as, for a few seconds, the sun shone through the waterfall around the disk. Something hit them again. It wasn't a planet. It was a ship, and most of it was still hanging in the rearward aerial array when Marco had fought the spin it gave them. Kin went out this time, and she steadied herself on an aerial stump as she looked at the frosted wreckage. Marco, I hear you. It's made one hell of a mess of the antennae. I have already deduced that. We are also losing air. Can you see the leak? There's fog damn near everywhere. I'm going to take a look. They heard her boots clump around the hull, and then there was a silence so long that Marco shouted into the radio. When Kin spoke, she spoke slowly. It is a ship, Marco. No, wrong word. A boat. A sailing boat. You know, like on seas. She looked across at the fire-rimmed disk. A waterfall pouring over the edge of the world. The mast was broken and most of the planking had been whirled away by the force of the impact, but enough rope had held together to make it obvious the boat had a passenger. Marco? Ken? It had a passenger. Humanoid? Kin growled. Look, it went over the waterfall and then into vacuum and then hit the ship. What sort of description do you want? It looks like an explosion in a morgue. Kin was used to violent death. Oldsters died that way, free-fall diving without a backpack on, deliberately wandering near when they released the cloned elephants on a new world, banjaxing the safeties and stepping into the hopper of a strata machine, but then ambulance crews took over. There had never been anything to see, except in the strata machine case, and that was only a strange pattern in a freshly laid coal measure. She knelt like a robot. Wet cloth had frozen in vacuum, but it had been good cloth, well woven. Inside. Silver later analysed tissue samples, and announced that the passenger had been human enough to call Kin cousin. She would have been surprised at any other result without being able to say quite why. He had sailed over the edge of the world. The thought made her go cold. Everyone knew the world was flat. Everyone had always known the world was flat. It was obvious. But there was always someone who would laugh at the old men and voyage into the terrifying seas to prove a different theory. And he had been horribly wrong. Kin was glad about the argument over the suits. There were five, two of which were Shand's size. One of the others seemed to be faulty, and the trio were all sufficiently space-cautious not to trust a suspect suit. "'We must take the dumb-waiter,' said Silver. "'Maybe you and Kin will be able to eat what is down there, but I will be poisoned.' "'Get the machine to dish out a sack of dried food concentrates, then,' ordered Marco. "'We need that fourth suit.' Silver grunted. Not as much as we need the machine. It can analyse food. It can supply clothing. If necessary, we can live off it. I'm inclined to agree, said Kin. It'll take the lifting power of the entire suit. Would you rather take a laser rifle that won't fire? said Silver. They glared at each other. Let's take it for Silver's sake, said Kin hurriedly. Hunger can be a big problem for Shandy. Marco shrugged twice. "'Take it, then,' he said, and snatched the toolkit from a wall locker. While they manhandled the big machine into the space suit and padded it around with thermoblankets, 
he took the control chair apart and ended up with a strip of metal trim sharpened to a killing edge and with a plastic handle at one end. Kin watched him weigh it thoughtfully in his hand. Ready to take on the makers of a fifteen thousand mile wide world with a homemade sword. Was that commendable human spirit or stupid Kung bravado? He turned and saw her watching him. This is not to put fear into them, he said, but to take fear out of me. Are we ready? He programmed the autopilot to hover for ten minutes a few hundred miles from the waterfall. They took off on the suit's life belts, silver towing the spare suit on a length of monofilament line. Kin glanced over her shoulder as the ship sped away on a spear of flame and climbed towards a high orbit. Then she turned back to the great wall of water and the little islands on the very edge. Way around the disk the orbiting sun was sinking. There were no city lights anywhere. In a ragged line they flew towards the tumbling water and the thunder at the edge of the world. No one had seen, just before the ship soared away, the now perfectly workable fifth suit tumble from the airlock. It inflated instantly, like an empty balloon. In the big bubble helmet the ravens surveyed the emergency controls carefully. The suits were designed for anything. They could fly across a star system and land on a world. There were tongue controls. The raven reached out, pecked gently. The suit surged forward. The raven watched intently, then tried another control. The dawn came wetly. Kin awoke soaked with dew. So much for thermoblankets. It had been a long night. The island at the very lip of the rimfall was hardly big enough to support a dangerous carnivore unless it was semi-aquatic. But Marco had pointed out that the disc might abound with semi-aquatic carnivores, and he had insisted on mounting guard. Kung could do without sleep for weeks at a time. Kin wondered whether to tell him about her personal stunner, now carefully hidden in a suit pocket. Feeling like a heel, she decided not to. She had a long struggle with her conscience, but she won. She won. Marco had evidently slept with the coming of the sun. He lay curled bonelessly under a dripping bush. Through the mists Kin saw Silver sitting on the rock outcrop by the fall side of the island. Kin scrambled up towards her. The Shand grinned and made room for her on a sun-warmed stone. The view was as though from the point of a wedge. The rocky peak rose out of what looked suspiciously like a small wood of ash and maple. Beyond the sun glinted off silver-green sea. To either side the fall was a white line of foam seen dimly through mist clouds. Behind Silver grabbed her in time. When Kin regained her balance she moved carefully down the slope to a seat that did not hang so obviously over a drop, and asked, "'Can you really sit there and not worry?' "'What's to worry? You did not fret in the ship when there was only a metre of hull between you and eternity,' said the Shand. "'That's different.' "'That's a real drop behind you.' Silver raised her muzzle and sniffed the air. "'Ice!' she exclaimed. "'I smell ice. Kin, may I give you a lecture on sunshine?' Kin automatically squinted at the sun. Her memory told her it was asteroid size, but it looked right for Earth. It felt right on her skin. "'Go ahead. Tell me something I don't know. I have noticed pack ice going over the fall. Why should this be?' We know the disk has polar islands, yet there are green lands nearby. Consider the distance between the equator and the polar islands. 
Why are not the north and south extremities frozen solid and the equatorial regions burning? Kin leaned her chin on her hands. The Shand was talking about the inverse square law. If the sun was 8,000 miles from the equator at noon, it was 11,000 miles from what had to be called the poles. Well, the path that sun followed couldn't be called an orbit. It moved like a guided spaceship. But that didn't explain the warm air around her. Consider. On most worlds the poles were but a few thousand miles further from the primary than was the equator, yet the temperature was wildly different. On the disk, if one thought of the temperate zone as being effectively Earth distance from the Sun, then the poles were out around Wotan and the equator broiled like Venus. Some sort of force lens, she hazarded. I could believe anything. Certainly the Sun's path must be changed regularly. I do not understand. To get seasons. Ah, seasons. Yes, humans would require seasons. Silver. The Shand sniffed again. This is good air, she said. Silver, stop dodging. You think we built this? Ah, the Kung and I have discussed the topic, it is true. The hell you have. We'd better get this clear. Humans may be mad, but we're not stupid. As a work of celestial mechanics, this disk is about as efficient as a rubber spanner. It must drink power to keep going. For crying out loud, you don't want to hang your descendants' lives on the efficiency of dinky little orbiting suns and fake stars. Why didn't the disk builders orbit it round the real sun? They must have had the power. Instead, they came out here to nowhere and built a world according to the ideas of some kind of medieval monk. That's not human. The man on the ship was human. Kin had been thinking hard and long about him. Sometimes he came into her thoughts unbidden in the long sleep hours. She hesitated before replying. I don't know. Maybe the disk builders kidnapped a bunch of humans back in prehistory, or perhaps there was parallel evolution somewhere. She felt angry at herself for her ignorance, and even angrier at the Shan for diplomatically not picking at the big holes in her argument. If someone had offered Kin an instant return to the comforts of Earth at that moment, she would have spat. There were too many questions to be answered first. Out loud. J-Lo talked about matter transmission. I wonder how they get the water up from the bottom of the fall back into the ocean. Marco scrambled up the rocks towards them. A change had come over him since landing on the disc. On the ship, Kin remembered him as being moody, cynical. Now he seemed to vibrate with undirected enthusiasm. We must make plans, he said. You have a plan, Kin corrected. It is imperative we contact the masters of the disc, said Marco, nodding and not appearing to notice her sarcasm. You have changed your mind, then? Silver's voice floated down from the heights. She was standing up, sniffing the air again. I face facts, however distasteful. We cannot repair the ship. They will have the capacity to do so, or spacecraft we may hire. J-Lo got back, or do you wish to spend your life here? I do not think the disk people can help us, said Silver. We detected no power sources, no energy transmission. We landed unaccosted. These are my secondary reasons for suspecting a lapse into barbarianism. Secondary? said Kin. Silver grunted. There is a ship approaching, she said. 
"'By its lines I do not suspect it is a sports plaything of an advanced race.' They stared at her, and then raced up the crag. Marco beat Kin to the top by a series of long leaps, and peered out across the water. "'Where? Where?' Kin saw a speck on the edge of sight. "'It is a rowing ship, twelve oars to a side,' said Silver, squinting slightly. "'There is a mast, and a furled sail. It stinks, the crew stink.' On their present course they will pass a mile to the north. Over the falls, said Kin. Surely the disc people have mastered the art of dealing with the waterfall, said Marco. The current does not appear to be strong. There is a weir effect. Kin thought of the man in the fallen boat. They know they're heading for the falls, but they don't know what the falls are, she said. Silver nodded. They stink because they are afraid, she said. They are changing course for this island. There is a man standing in the forward end, looking towards the falls. Marco became a blur of action. We must prepare, he hissed. Follow me down. Rocks crashed behind him as he bounded back towards the trees where they had spent the night. Kin glanced from the shand, standing like a statue to the boat. Even she could see the figures now. Water gleamed as it cascaded off whirling oars. She even thought she could hear shouts. "'I don't think they will make it,' she said quietly. "'That is so,' said Silver. "'See how the current swings them round.' "'It may be a test,' said Kin. "'I mean, the very day we're here and all.' Silver sniffed. "'My nose says not.' They looked at each other. Kin certainly was not going to argue with three hundred and fifty million smell cells. She could see the men in the boat clearly. There was one, a small bearded man, racing between the bent rowers and urging them on. At best, the boat was standing still. Ahem, <clears throat> suggested Silver. Kin squinted up at the sun. You recall that line we're using to tow the spare suit, she said. How long is it? Standard monofilament length, fifteen hundred metres, said Silver, adding, It could tether a world. "'Of course we could be making a big mistake,' said Kin, starting to run down the slope. Silver lumbered after her. "'The stomach says not,' she said. Kin smiled. Shandy had different ideas about the seat of the emotions. She flew out in a suit-lift belt shorn of the bubble suit, dragging one end of the cable by a wide loop. "'I consider this foolhardy in the extreme,' said Marco's voice in her earpiece. "'Maybe,' said Kin. "'Just remember it was me that went out to the crashed boat.' There was a pause, with just the hissing of the wind in one ear and the carrier wave in the other. Finally Marco said, "'Point your belt camera at the boat.' The rowers had seen her. Most of them were hanging transfixed on their oars. The boat was perhaps twenty-five metres long, built like a pod. Silver had been too critical. Whoever had built it had a keen knowledge of hydrodynamics. There was one mast amidships with a furled sail. What space there was among the rowers appeared to be filled with jars and bundles. Kin aimed at the red-haired man in the prow and dived, skimmed the wave-tops and braked on a level with his astonished face, dropping the cable loop over the ornate prow and yelling to Silver. Spray drenched her as the cables sprang out of the water. "'Get them rowing,' said Kin, making desperate arm movements. "'To the island,' she insisted, pointing dramatically. Red hair stared at her. "'At the island?' at the taut cable and the curving wake of the ship as Silver took the strain. 
Then he vaulted down the length of the boat, screaming at the bewildered men. One stood up and started to argue. Red Hair picked up a spar from the deck and hit him hard, then hauled him from his place and took his oar. Kin barrelled skyward, looking down on a ship that was already leaving a wake like a powerboat. Then she levelled out and headed back to the island. Its wooded shores passed far below her, and she began searching in the misty blue sky beyond the falls. She found what she was looking for. There was a tiny white speck drifting outwards. She swooped, hearing the slight whoomp as the belt's field took up a new protective shape around her. Silver's belt motor was whining. Suit belts could lift their owners against ten gravities, and Silver probably weighed five hundred pounds. It added up to a lot of pulling power at the end of the cable. As Kin waved and turned back for the disc, Silver's voice grunted in her ear, "'There have been several jerks on the cable.' Kin looked down. There was a swathe of felled timber across the island. The tree they'd used as an anchor hadn't been tough enough after all. Now the cable was bent around the crag itself. "'Everything's fine,' she said. "'We've got the edge on the current. The cable cut through some trees, that's all.' The boat was broadside onto the falls, but bouncing across the already whitening water. "'Fine, Silver,' she said. "'Fine. Marco wanted to meet the natives, and he's going to get a basin full in a minute. Steady. Steady. Stop. Stop!' The boat crunched onto the beach and bounded up into the trees, oars snapping. Several men fell overboard. "'We've beached it,' said Kin, dropping towards the wood. "'If they've got any imagination, they're kissing that ground,' said Silver. "'Right. Let's hope Marco has the sense to stay out of sight.' Her earpiece crackled. "'I heard that. I wish to disassociate myself from this entire undertaking.' Kin swooped. She remembered being told that ultimately, and whatever the science fiction blats might say, no one ever learned a language by eavesdropping on a culture's communications. It always came down to face-to-face confrontations, to pointing, to drawing circles in the sand. Circles in the sand. Well, it came down to pointing. Much later she found Silver and Marco in their clearing higher up the slope. Silver was sitting beside the dumb waiter, scooping handfuls of grey and red goo out of a bowl. Marco was lying full length, peering through the leaves at the men on the beach. They had lit a fire and were cooking something. Silver nodded at her and did something to the dumb waiter's controls. I already ate, sighed Kin. Some sort of grain meal and dried fish, didn't you see? I was, in fact, programming for an emetic. Marco turned over. You ate food without even a rudimentary analysis? Do you wish to die so soon? We need their trust, said Kin. She tossed a sliver of fish to Silver. I'll take your damn potion, but hold that under the waiter's nose. You know waiter food always tastes like somebody already ate it. While we're here we might as well have full stomachs. She took a bowl of pink fluid from Silver's paw and retired to the other side of the clearing, where she was briefly and noisily sick. Silver reached up and dialed the waiter for coffee. Presently the machine extruded a tongue of green plastic. She tore it out and read it. "'High on usable protein and vitamins,' she said. "'There is a hydrocarbon content from the drying process, which may be carcinogenic in the long term, but it appears to pose no great risk.' "'Great,' said Kin, helping herself to coffee. "'Suddenly I feel I could never look another dried fish in the face.' Now, are you ready for the big answers? As far as I can understand it, the small, red-haired man calls himself Life Erickson. 
Silver flicked the green printout neatly into the machine's intake hopper. "'That is a remarkable coincidence or something else,' she said calmly. "'You're not kidding!' Marco turned back from his surveillance. "'What is coincidental?' he said. "'Did you observe their weaponry?' "'They have swords made out of uh, bog-iron, hand-beaten, easily blunted,' said Kin thoughtfully. "'Their greatest weapon is their boat. "'Are you familiar with the term clinker-built?' he nodded. "'Good. It means nothing to me. They're fast. "'These people rule a large part of the sea with those boats and those swords. "'Sometimes they are pirates, but they've got a sophisticated system of law. "'They're brave. A thousand-mile journey in a boat like that is commonplace.' Marco stared at her. "'You learned all that?' "'No, all I understood was his name, and only because I've heard it before. It's all from memory.' She looked at Silver for confirmation. The Shand nodded. "'In the year three hundred and twenty-two, she intoned, Ericsson sailed the ocean blue.' "'Very poetic,' said Marco levelly. "'Now, will you please explain?' "'If you were raised in Mexico, you wouldn't have heard about this,' said Kin. "'They're snobbish about their history down there. "'Life Erikson,' she began to outline Earth's history, "'discovered Vinland, more than three hundred years after the Battle of Heilkor "'had ended the third and last Riemann Empire. "'The big migration followed automatically. "'The Turks were again pushing west and north. "'Life's father, Erik, was a shrewd salesman.' His Greenland had turned out nowhere like as green as it had been in his imagination, but from Vinland Live had thoughtfully brought rich berries and wild grains. The Northmen went west again. They leapfrogged colony after colony down the eastern seaboard, up into the base rugged lands around Tyker's Sea, and down the long fjord into the Middle Seas. It was the landscape of their dreams. They called it Valhalla. There were natives. But the newcomers were only half-hearted farmers. Underneath the agricultural veneer they thought bloody. Those tribes they couldn't outfight, they outthought. When they met the Objibwa Confederacy, they made treaties, and they spread and merged. By all the theories, it should have ended there. Neither the natives nor the invaders had the textbook kind of social dynamic that builds reams. The Northmen should have become just another tribe, with blue eyes and fair hair. The theories were wrong. Something latent in both races was sparked into fire. It was a big continent, and it was rich. In short, three hundred years after life, a fleet arrived at the mouth of the Mediterranean. Most of the vessels were under sail, although there were one or two, small, fast, and inclined to blow up, that could move into the wind. The sails of the big ships bore the great eagle of Valhalla on a striped background alternating the colours of the sky, the snow, and blood. The Battle of Gibraltar was short. Europe had been through two hundred years of stagnation. There was no answer to cannon. "'I take the point,' said Marco. "'This live is an important figure in Earth history. This is not, however, Earth.' "'It looks like Earth,' said Kin. "'An Earth that was only imagined, but Earth.' "'Are you seriously suggesting?' "'I'll tell you what I'm suggesting.' I think you and Silver are right. I think humans built this place. I can't think why. Silver grunted. Surely there would be records. Not if the company suppressed them. It was the logical answer. 
the company had built this artefact in secret. J-Lo had been a plant sent to bring them here. Why would the company build the disc? Kin thought she knew the answer, and she didn't like it. But she couldn't figure out why there had been such a performance to bring them here. But at least it was all logical. What other answer was there? Mysterious aliens? They would have to be very mysterious. If it was the company, Kin hated it. "'We are in danger from every quarter,' said Marco enthusiastically. "'We must wear our lift belts at all times. I suggest we move towards a centre of civilization. We might find some clues as to the disc's origins.' "'Then there's our transport,' said Kin, pointing. "'I don't know how long suit power lasts against gravity, but if there's any sea to cross, I'd like to do it in a boat.' "'They may yet turn out to be hostile.' said Marco, watching the men. When they see you and Silver... In fact, introducing the aliens presented a problem. Kin solved it by walking down to the encampment naked. After her earlier appearance as the goddess of mercy, she was confident the men would sooner rape an alligator. Live rushed towards her and sank to his knees. She looked down at him with an expression she hoped was benevolent. He was smaller than most of the crew. She wondered how he exerted his authority, until she saw the shrewd glint in his eye, even now that said here was the master of the unsporting kick and the kidney punch. She felt glad of the stunner, now concealed in her palm. "'You're about to have an amazing opportunity to make new friends,' she said sweetly. "'This is one saga they'll never believe.' "'Okay, Silver, come on out.' The Shand appeared at the decent distance, pushing through the bushes further along the beach. As she plodded nearer, several men hurried off in the other direction. When they saw her tusks, several others followed them. Grinning fit to burst, Kin walked across to the Shand and put a hand in one huge leather-palmed paw. "'Stop smiling,' she said through clenched teeth. "'I thought it would put them at Eve. "'On you it looks hungry.' Life was still standing rooted to the sand as Kin led the Shand up to him. She took the man's hand in hers. "'Kneel and grovel,' she murmured. Silver folded up obediently. Live looked at her and then at Kin. Finally he reached out and prodded Silver's arm. "'Good boy,' said Kin, beaming. He jumped back. To introduce phase two, Kin began to whistle the old Robot Morris tune, Mrs. Widgery's Lodger. Silver danced mournfully on the sand, gazing heavenward with an expression of acute distaste. But she held the rhythm. She also moved awkwardly. Kin, who had seen her move like oiled water, admired that last touch. Anything sufficiently ungainly was funny. Funny wasn't dangerous. The men began to trickle back. Silver danced on, kicking up little sandstorms and shuffling from one foot to the other. Kin stopped whistling. "'You've passed,' she said. "'They're practically about to feed you lumps of sugar. Have a rest. Try to avoid yawning. Marco!' Marco hissed. He stepped out of the bushes. In his grey shipsuit and a cloak hastily made out of a thermoblanket, he looked passably human, if emaciated. His eyes were too big, and his nose was too long— his face was grey as the suit, but he had masses of flame-red hair. It wasn't really hair, but it was red. 
Perhaps it made up for the eyes. The men watched him warily, but no one fled this time. One of them stepped up to Live and growled something, drawing a short sword. That led to a moment of confusion that ended with Marco crouched to spring and a man lying on the sand with the sword ten feet away. Then Live stopped twisting his arm and took a running kick. The man screamed. "'Now we launch the boat,' said Kin firmly. Silver padded towards the beached vessel and braced herself with a shoulder against the prow. Nothing happened for a moment, and then the boat slid down the beach, only stopping when the stern was moving urgently in the current. Kin took Live's arm and led him firmly towards it. He was quick on the uptake. Within five minutes the men were on board, the dumbwaiter was humming to itself by the mast, and all eyes were on Silver, hovering out to sea on the end of the cable. There was an area of dead water where the sea parted around the island before dropping into nothingness. By the time the current tugged feebly at it, the boat was flying over the waves. Two incidents enlivened the journey. Marco was handed a horn of some sweet substance by a nervous life. He sniffed it suspiciously and poured some into the waiter. "'It appears to be some kind of glucose drink,' he said. "'What do you think, Ken?' "'Did you try it on the waiter?' "'It gave a green light. Could it be some form of strengthening potion?' He drank half the horn and smacked what passed for lips. Then he laughed vaguely and drank the other half. Later he programmed the dumb waiter to duplicate it, and when the men had got over their amazement at the disposable plastic cups, they were passed back as fast as they could be filled. Spasmodic singing broke out, and there was an occasional clattering of oars as rowers missed their stroke. Finally Kin, after Live's unspoken plea, switched off the machine. Later Silver tried her hand at rowing. Sitting amidships and grasping two oars, she followed the stroke easily. One by one the rowers stopped to watch her. The boats didn't slow until her oars snapped. Marco found Kin sitting in the skin shelter behind the mast, drinking martinis and thinking. "'I wish a private word,' he said. "'Fine,' said Kin, patting the rug beside her. "'How's the head now?' "'Better.' "'That drink obviously contains dangerous impurities. "'I don't think I will try any more for an hour or so.' "'He fished in his belt pouch and pulled out a roll of plastic. "'It opened out into an aerial photograph of the disc. "'I got the computer to prepare it before we left the ship,' he said. "'Why didn't you show it to me before?' "'I did not wish to encourage any foolhardy explorations. "'However, now that we are penetrating the disc—' "'Look at the photo. What is missing?' Kin took the sheet. "'A lot,' she said. "'You know that. No Valhalla. That's why Live found the waterfall. No Brazil. The peaceful ocean is tiny. Look, round here on the back of Asia. Any additions?' Kin peered at the map. "'I don't know,' she said. Marco used a double-jointed thumb to point to the centre of the disc. "'The cloud cover makes it a bit indistinct.' "'But that shouldn't be there, that island in the Arabian Sea. "'You notice it's perfectly circular. "'It is the geographical hub of the disk. "'What about it?' "'Don't you see? It is an anomaly. "'We'll find the disk civilization there, if anywhere. "'These people are barbarians. "'Intelligent, yes, but space-going.' "'He looked at her. 
"'Are you afraid this may turn out to be a company artifact?' he said carefully. She nodded. End of Side 5